Hey, beautiful people. Welcome to the Catherine B. Roy Show, where passion meets profit and dreams turn into flourishing businesses. I'm your host, Catherine B. Roy. I'm thrilled to introduce you to extraordinary high achievers, Nobel Peace Prize and Emmy winners, Premier League and NFL players, best-selling authors, seven-figures business owners, coaches, consultants, therapists, and a plethora of brilliant minds. Together, we'll uncover the secrets to making our world a better place. Expect inspiration, practical tools, and positivity. But that's not all. In the spirit of growth, don't forget to explore the valuable resources shared in the episode description. Whether you're here to learn or collaborate, this podcast has something special just for you. My guest today is Dr. James V. Hart. Dr. James V. Hart is an expert in the field of neurofeedback and brainwave optimization, dedicated to helping individuals unlock their full potential through advanced brain training techniques. As the founder and CEO of BioCybernaut Institute, James has spent over four decades researching and developing cutting-edge methods to enhance cognitive performance, emotional intelligence, and overall well-being. With a diverse clientele that includes top executives, athletes, and celebrities, James has been recognized in prominent media outlets such as Business Insider and Huffington Post for his groundbreaking work. His passion for neuroscience and commitment to sharing his knowledge make James a highly sought-after speaker and consultant in the world of personal development and peak performance. And I am so excited. This episode is epic. Please don't miss the brilliant gems Dr. James shared with us. Let's dive in. Welcome, Dr. James. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you today? It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you, Catherine. It's my absolute pleasure. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about your journey and about, um, tell us a story, actually, about your work and how you can help us? Okay. Well, I'll do a personal story, uh, how I came by this work. Second, and first, I'll talk about a man who's given me permission to speak about his story. It's mm -hmm. a businessman named Gunnar Hertig. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a Stanford MBA and a master's degree in um, electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. So he knew silicon at the atomic level, and he also knew management. So he was a very hot property in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And standard uh, policy for uh, accepting jobs. He would take a two-year contract as CEO of a company, mm -hmm. and at the end of two years, it didn't matter what they offered him, he would resign, and his contract would end, and then he would go to another company. He called himself a quarter circle guy. He mm -hmm. would take a company from here to here, not from here to here, not from here to here, not from here to here. He knew what he was good at. And when Gunner was coming off contract, there would be 50 or 60 headhunters who would be after him, pushing job opportunities on him. And he was very rational, very intellectual, very smart. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would uh, uh, do weighted lists of pros and cons. But even doing a weighted list of pros and cons, he didn't feel like it was quite, uh, you know, it didn't get, grab him as this is a thing to do. Mm -hmm. So after he did his Alpha One training, which was profound, I'll tell you just a little about that. Mm -hmm. Gunner, oh, he was like Mr. Spock in uh, Star Trek, totally rational all the time. And if somebody wasn't totally rational 100% of the time, Gunner would say, oh, he's off his nut or oh, she's off her nut. That was his expression. Mm -hmm. okay. 
So he goes through the alpha training on a day five. When I went into the chamber where you quiet, dark chamber, where you do the brainwave feedback training, mm-hmm. it was clear that he was in an altered state. And so uh, I asked him uh, to talk about his experience. And he was in, he was out of body. He was watching his body make love with a beautiful woman. And he was in a third perspective, watching himself, watch himself. Okay. And so uh, when I said to him, Gunner, if I had told you five days ago that such a thing was possible, you would have said I was off my nut. And whereupon he doubled over in belly laughing. He couldn't stop laughing for 10 minutes. His stomach muscles hurt for days because they had so much exercise. And he was profoundly different. Now, about nine months later, he came back to me and he said, Jim, I want to do a four-day alpha brainwave tune-up. And I said, Gunnar, we don't have a four-day tune-up. We only have a seven-day training. And he goes, well, I'm going to pay you four sevens of the seven-day training price, and I want to do four days of alpha. I go, okay. So the first two days, like a sailor, he was just getting his sea legs back. But then he had, he'd come in, his contract was ending. He had a list of the top five candidates. So in the alpha chamber, in his mind, he would accept one of those job offers. We call this the high-tech decision-making. And in, and then he would live out what his life would be like if he took that job, noting what his alpha scores were. Then after a few epics, which are two minute long, where you do the feedback and then you get numerical scores, then he would step out of that and he would, in his mind, choose the second option and live that one out. Now, he knew the industry well enough. He knew if he would take a job in this country, he'd have international marketing responsibilities, whereas in this country, he'd be supervising engineers, electrical engineers, and programmers. So at the end of doing that, he would have them rank ordered in terms of most alpha to the least alpha. Then on the last day of his four-day tune-up, he would do the same thing again to confirm. And when the session was over, he would call for a cordless phone we would bring it to him. He would call the recruiter whose offering consistently gave him his highest alpha, and he would accept that job. Well, this was so powerfully effective that his career went up like this. And when he reached $50 million in net worth, he retired thinking that was going to be enough. And then he went to a university in Australia to get a PhD in astrophysics using their big radio telescope to study seven different star-forming regions in the southern hemisphere sky. Now, later, after he got his PhD, he did come back into the industry, and he ran two $100 million venture capital funds for Weiss, Peck, and Greer. And so he attributed his success to making his business decisions in a high-alpha state which of course means that all aspects of himself, his emotions, his thinking, his gut, everything was aligned with that decision. And so he knew he would do uh, best in that decision. So for all of your business uh, clients, all of your business audience, this is one of the features that we use in the BioCybernaut Alpha Brainwave training. We call it the high-tech decision-making. Now there's also a major feature of the seven-day alpha training, And by the way, there are 24 levels of it, each one seven days long. So you can go as high as you want. There is also major forgiveness. Uh, We I I wrote a computer program that administers mood scales, Mm -hmm. uh, which 
come up with 21 different moods. But by doing it in the chamber, while the brainwaves are being recorded, I was able to create an algorithm that would determine the accuracy of the answer to each word, the emotion words like friendly, clear thinking, sleepy, unhappy, dizzy, angry. Uh, and they would push a button, zero, not at all, one, a little, two, moderately, three, quite a bit, and four, extremely. And so if the computer set, let's say the word is angry, mm-hmm. and puts zero, if the computer determined there was a high probability that that answer was wrong, then the next morning, their trainer would ask them, well, you said no to anger, but the computer thought there might be some unconscious anger. So what's the story? Maybe then the lips tremble a little and a tear comes out, rolls down the cheek and the trainer goes, okay, well, tell us the story. So then there would be some trauma and there was a perpetrator, somebody who did them dirty, did them bad or failed to you know, honor a promise. And so that person would go on the forgiveness list. Well, this clears out the unconscious negative emotions in such a powerful way that creativity goes up 50% from the alpha one training in just seven days. And uh, IQ goes up 11.7 points, almost 12 points. And emotional intelligence, which Travis, Dr. Travis Bradbury and Janine Greaves in their book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, they say it's the master skill of success, accounting for 58% of your success in life. Emotional intelligence. IQ is maybe 10 or 20%, but emotional intelligence, EQ, is 58%. And that, <laughs> we used to give that test on day one, and again on day seven, it was online test. Uh-huh. Of average 15.8 points increase. Well, the people who did the test didn't believe that it was possible to have that big of an increase in emotional intelligence in a week. So they changed the algorithm so you could not take the second test until six months later. Uh-huh. And, well, I do have a publication in a scientific journal documenting the 15.8 a point increase in emotional intelligence. Okay, so there's a little bit. Oh, well, then one more thing. R- again, for your business audience, uh, Daniel Goldman has published an article in the Harvard Business Review where he talks about emotional intelligence. And they studied uh, business styles uh, in managers all around the world. And they came up with six different basic styles. They ranged all the way from authoritarian, you'll do this because I'm the boss and I say so all the way to somebody who won't act until they have total agreement with everybody and everything in between. Well, what they found was that the most powerful and effective managers were ones who could use each one of these styles situationally appropriately. But with this person, maybe you need to use the authoritarian style. With this person, you need to use the consensus building style. And so it turns out that in order to be a masterful in each one of these six different business styles, you need high EQ, emotional intelligence. So you can switch from one to another and assess where the person or the group is in order to determine what business style uh, to use with that group at that time. And that, of course, is why the business a benefit of the BioCybernet training includes a 50% increase in creativity and almost 12-point boost in IQ and a 15.8-point increase in emotional intelligence. So it's it's incredibly powerful. For In fact, I'll tell you this. For uh, 10 years, I had a, a training center in Canada. I have one in Germany now, in southern Bavaria, uh, but I also had one in Canada 
uh, until COVID shut it down. Canada got real strict. And for a while, you couldn't even drive from province to province unless you were uh, injected with COVID. Uh, injected. And so we had there a scholarship sponsor, a man who, uh, I can say his name, Alan Paul Markin. He was a co-founder of Canada's second largest oil and gas company, CNRL, Canadian Natural Resources Limited. And he, after he did his training uh, in my Victoria, British Columbia training center in December of 2008, he then made a $6 million grant for scholarships for people from his company and also um, for Canadian Aboriginals. Now, when he sent people from his company, he said the ROI on a biosavernet training was 100. If he paid $15,000 for the single training, the double what we do now is 20,000, he the employee that he got back, he valued at $1.5 million. An incredible boost in the value of the employee to the company just by doing seven week alpha brainwave training. Now, the fact that he had grown his company from zero to $2 billion in just two years attests to the expertise of this powerful businessman. So when he says the ROI on a biosavernate training is 100, it's wise to take it more seriously than if somebody running a grocery store you know, were to say that. So there we have you know, several different business angles on the biosavernate training. Now, my personal story. I was a physics major at Carnegie Institute of Technology. And in the fall semester of my senior year, when I came out of the student union, having had lunch, I was uh, met by a big sign, uh, hand-painted, every letter a slightly different culture, and it said, Dr. Joe Camilla will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. And it gave a time, oh, that's just 10 minutes away. And the building was Margaret Morrison College right across the tennis courts. And I didn't have a class that hour, so I went. Now, I had been, one of my good friends was a psychology grad student at Duquesne University, and they were studying phenomenology, or the science of the processes of consciousness, which uh, my psych department didn't think very much of, because many of them were behaviorists. But they, I, I was reading Father Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's Phenomenon of Man, and we were talking about philosophy, and it was all very interesting, but it wasn't measurable. How do you measure this? And all of a sudden, I'm at this talk by Joe Camilla, and he's showing that brainwaves can very accurately and precisely discriminate among different states of consciousness. And even more exciting, a few years earlier, in 1962, he had discovered that when people were given feedback on their brainwaves, auditory feedback, where if the alpha waves get bigger, the tones get louder, and if the alpha waves get smaller in amplitude, the tones get quieter, and then every period, every epoch, every two minutes, he would give them a, a score quantifying the energy that people could learn to control their own alpha brainwaves. Now, I had just gotten a degree in physics. That was a 400-year-old science. To do a new uh, research paper, you might have 40 scientists on the paper because they're running like some machines like at CERN. Well, this science was so new, it wasn't even 10 years old. And so... I set out to uh, read everything I could about brainwaves. Then when I graduated in the spring, I jumped on my Triumph motorcycle and I rode up into Canada across the Trans-Canadian Highway and down I-5 all the way to San Francisco. And I showed up at Joe's office, his lab, volunteered as a research subject. And they put me in the chamber 
It was very primitive. One electrode in the middle of the back of the head, one speaker uh, with one sound and one three-digit score. And I was a Protestant fundamentalist physics major, very in my head and uh, with a lot of anxiety because it was that anxiety about I had to keep my scholarship, I had to keep my grades up. And so uh, this was the most fascinating thing I'd ever done. So I went back the next day and had another hour. I went back the next day and had another hour, getting more and more fascinated uh, by the minute. Well, I went back on the fourth day, but they weren't doing any studies yet. So I had learned a little bit about how the lab worked, and I'd become friends with Dr. Camille's girlfriend who worked in the lab. Joanne Gardner was her name. Later, she became his wife. And so I asked Joanne if she would take me downstairs and put a couple of electrodes on, ear clip reference and a ground, and so put me in the chamber so I could play. And she goes, oh, sure, of course, I'll do that. And she took me downstairs, put me in the chamber, and started the equipment. And then she went upstairs and got involved in her work, and she forgot I was there. Later, lunchtime came, and with nine other people, she went out to a 12-course Chinese lunch. And in course 11, she goes, oh, my God. And she remembered that there was somebody still cooking in the chamber. So they all piled back into the VW camper van, raced across town, ran up to the lab, ran into the building, ripped open the door, and interrupted the late stages of a most incredible adventure. I had had ego disintegration, out-of-body experience. Uh, I was flying around the universe. I was meeting up with discorporate entities. And this was, I must say, quite a lot for a Protestant fundamentalist physics major. And I was so high that for the next three days, my feet didn't touch the ground. And But then it was summer was over, and I got back on my motorcycle, and I rode back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from San Francisco. And I went back to what was now Carnegie Mellon. They joined with Mellon Institute over the summer. And I went to the psych department. I said, I'd like to get a PhD in psychology. And they, and they liked me, and they gave me a full scholarship and $2,200 a month stipend to live on. And I figured I needed to get my rational mind stamped with somebody's seal of approval, PhD in psychology, because I somehow knew I'd be dealing with very weird things. For example, I know the brainwave pattern of people who see angels. And sometimes if people come in and they have this pattern, I say, do you see angels? How do you know? I've never told anybody. And it's also a pattern that's learnable. Uh, if people come in, they don't have it, and then the brainwaves change and they do have the pattern. Now, uh, lest people think this is a little uh, out there, at one point, I had the privilege of moving my technology to a secret army base on the East Coast of the United States to train 24 U.S. Army Green Berets, uh, two 12-man teams. And uh, before I started, I wired them each one up, and I ran our base signs, eyes open, base sign, eyes closed, base sign, and Eyes closed, white noise, count the beeps, baseline. Well, one of the 24 soldiers had what I call angel pattern. So after I ran them all through, then they came one at a time into my office, and I had a private interview with them. Well, imagine there's this big skinhead killer dude, totally buffed and muscular, sitting across the table, and I'm looking at it. How do you ask a guy like this? Does he see angels? So I'm trying to think, what do I say? I go, okay, do you talk to beings that other people don't see? And he went back in his chair, and like he almost tipped over. He's hyperventilating, like having a panic attack. He goes, how do you know? And I go, well, see it in the numbers. He goes, how do you know? He said, I've only told my best buddy on pain of death if he would ever tell anybody. How do you know? 
And I said, well, look, your central alpha is higher than your occipital alpha, and both of them exceed the threshold for people who see angels. So with that data, he said, well, okay, I'll tell you. He said, when I'm doing my martial arts training, there's this little old Asian martial arts master, and he shows up and he coaches me and nobody else can see him. So being able to see angels uh, can sometimes have very practical, real-world advantages, even for warriors, high-performance, peak performers. So, yeah, very, very cool. Okay, so then I've now, back, jumping back to the story where I've just registered for a degree, a PhD program in psychology. Well, uh, during my senior year, I had set up an exchange program with the psychology department at Duquesne, where they were teaching phenomenology. They had a bunch of French priests, followers of uh, uh, Merleau-Ponty and Edmund Husserl had come over. And my psych department, which was mostly behaviorist, my psych professors called that stuff witchcraft because they didn't believe in experience. They only believed in behavior. And so um, I figured, well, uh, this weird thing has happened to me. And I'm still like kind of high. And so I walked up the hill. Rolf had a big rented house from the robber baron era of Pittsburgh. To give you an idea how big the house was, the top floor had living quarters for 11 maids that were needed to run this gigantic house. Okay, so, and Rolf was interesting because he'd been a grad student at Harvard under Timothy Leary. And he had done tons of LSD. He'd lived at the community at Millbrook. And uh, so I figured, well, if anybody's gonna know what happened to me, it's gonna be Rolf. So I walk up, you know, go into his house, walk into his big office and he looks at me and he sees that I'm very different. And he goes, sit down. Uh, and he takes one hand and he sweeps everything off his desk and he goes, okay, what has happened to you? So I go telling him, you know, it took about four hours to tell the story. Midway through the story, his neighbor lady came in, stood respectfully in the distance for a while, then left and came back and walked around to my side of the desk and put down a book. This was the autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Now, somebody had given me that a month earlier. I, ah, you know, this is nonsense. But as it turned out, I later I, I read the book. I signed up for the lessons. I went five years. I was initiated into Kriya Yoga by one of Yogananda's direct disciples. So that was a, an incredible journey. But when I finished my four-hour talk telling Rolf von Eckertsburg what had happened, he goes, well, we can do that here. All of a sudden, this was no longer something really cool that had happened to me. I had not a job, not a profession, not a career. I had a vocation. Now, the psych department where I just registered had one soundproof chamber for doing you know, psychological research. And there was a big junky pile of old equipment that with my physics background, I could cobble it together and make my own brainwave feedback training center. And so the first research study that I did was with 20 college students, 10 high anxiety and 10 low. I gave them personality tests to select them. And uh, that was the beginning of my career. And I worked, I, at one point I had a large federal grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. I moved out to, uh, I worked in Joe Camilla's lab. I left Carnegie, even before I got my PhD, I did almost all of my research in uh, Joe Camilla's lab at UCSF. And so I, I repeated the doctoral dissertation, more measures, more kinds of feedback, teaching people how to express alpha as well as increase it, gives it a greater power and control. 
And then I won a large federal grant, a three-year federal grant from National Institute of Mental Health. This grant was entitled Anxiety and Aging Intervention with EEG Alpha Feedback. And my target population, all the pilot studies had done with college-age males, and I used women from 60 years of age up into their 80s because at every age, women are more anxious than men. And in both men and women, anxiety goes up with age, and in women, it goes up faster. So I figured women over 60 would be postmenopausal, so you didn't have to worry about scheduling because the alpha is depressed in the premenstrual week. And so postmenopausal women were not only going to be easier to schedule, but they would be at most uh, the most at risk group for anxiety. And so a couple of questions. Would it work for them as well as for the younger uh, people? The answer was yes. They had the same range of benefits, reductions in anxiety and depression and schizophrenia and paranoia and psychasthenia and, and, and psychopathic deviancy. All these things went down. And positive characteristics like vigor, friendliness, clear thinking, uh, open-mindedness, vigor, all of that went up. But because I had been doing this now for some years, uh, and I was—I I didn't know how long these benefits lasted. So I built into the federal grant provided funding to bring them back at six months after their training and retest them, and bring them back at twelve months and retest them. I wanted to know, you know, how rapidly the benefits would fade. Well, when we brought back the people at six months, to my head scratching uh, bewilderment, they were better at six months than they were immediately after the training which of course, before they did the training, they did batteries of personality tests twice a week apart. So we had two pre-measures and one post that way you can detect and correct statistically for any regression to the mean. And so, but th they weren't regressing, they were getting better. The personality profiles showed reductions of bad qualities and increases of good qualities. And so the, the time goes by, we start bringing them back for their 12 month and they are further improved. And so at the time I didn't have a conceptual framework for it, but now I understand that when you change your brainwaves, you change your identity. For example, at the same time that I was learning that you raise your alpha waves and you might be an anxiety neurotic. After the alpha training, you're normal. Your anxiety is in the middle of the normal range. Same with depression and paranoia and even schizophrenia, uh, as measured by the MMPI. Drops from like 98th, 99th percentile all the way into the middle of the normal zone. So you change your brainwaves and you change your personality. Now, at the same time I was discovering this, other researchers were studying multiple personalities. People who would spontaneously shift, like Jane would switch into Linda or maybe into Bill. And so they put EEG electrodes on these people and just did continuous recordings. And when Linda would switch into Jane, there would be massive and profound changes in the brainwaves. And when Jane would switch into Bill, there would be massive and profound changes in the brainwaves. And when Bill would switch back into Linda or Jane, again, there would be massive and profound changes in the brainwaves. So it works bi-directionally. If personality spontaneously changes, the brainwaves change. If we teach people how to change their brainwaves, their personalities will change. And by training alpha waves, you're getting more good qualities and less of the bad qualities. And the pro the process, there's a recent book by uh, Frederick Dodson called Parallel Universes of Self, in which he just explains how identity and reality are synonymous. 
So if you can change your identity, you can change your reality. Maybe you could conceptualize it as switching to a different timeline where you actually have a different history. I could, if we have time, I could even give you some examples of that uh, where people do forgiveness work and then they go back and revisit aspects of their past and it's different. Uh, but identity and reality are synonymous. So if you change your identity, you change your reality. People say, well, that's all well and good, but how do you change your identity? I go, simple. You just change your brainwave. Well, well, how do you do that? Simple. You come to BioCybernaut, and in one week, you can have a profoundly different set of brainwaves. Now, to give you an idea of one of the types of changes, uh, there were two famous Japanese scientists, uh, Dr. Kasumatsu and Dr. Harai, and they wanted to study the brainwaves of Zen meditation. Now, just like Christianity has two main branches, Protestant and Catholic, Zen has two main branches, Soto and Rinzai. And so they went to Zen masters in both of the main traditions, Soto and Rinzai, and very respectfully requested permission to measure the brainwaves of the monks doing Zen meditation. Permission granted. But further, they asked the Zen masters to rate the level of proficiency of their monks, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And then they measured the brainwaves. Well, the first thing they found was the higher the rated level of spiritual development, the more alpha brainwaves they had in their head during meditation. And there were nuances. The beginners mostly increased alpha at the back of the head. That was zero to six years. The intermediate, six to 21 years, the alpha spread forward on the head. And in the advanced, nobody was rated advanced with less than 21 years, and some had up to 40 there was a slowing of the alpha waves a little bit. The range is 8 to 13. So if somebody is at 10, maybe they slowed to 9.5 or 9.2. And there were theta waves that began to be emitted from the frontal light sites. Well, at one point in 1997, I analyzed 17 right-handed uh, people who had done my brainwave training. And that was exactly the pattern of brainwaves that was produced. So seven days of the alpha training allows you to make the same brainwave changes that if you were doing Zen in Japan would take a minimum of 21 years. The BioCybernaut technology speeds things up. Now, in addition to being able to develop a more Zen-like state of mind, there's also the IQ boost, almost 12 points, the creativity leaps 50%, and the emotional intelligence goes up 15.8 points. So you have all those practical benefits along with the serenity of a Zen mind. So I kind of like doing brainwave training. I had goosebumps almost all the time you were talking. <laughs> and now everything falls to the right place. I will be completely <laughs> open like the lightning struck now. It's like um, we rescheduled this interview several times. And now I know why it happened now in this divine timing. You know, uh, I've changed my identity. I didn't know anything what you are now saying to us. And I would like us to go more deeply into scientific fact because my I was a programmer. So my mind oh. was searching for a scientific proof of what actually yes. happened to me. Yes. So everything that you just mentioned... Um, at one point, Mensa measured, measured my IQ, and they uh -huh. said it was about 156. They Beautiful. Can't, they can't measure higher. Yeah. 
But they didn't help me in life, Dr. James. I, yeah. I was I just I was struggling all the time. So I was trying yeah. to search for an answers. And I went from one to another personal growth and spiritual growth programs, learning yeah. about higher level of consciousness, learning about alpha state of mind, doing oh. all of these things which you just mentioned. I had out of body <laughs> experience. I, I, I have goosebumps now. I, I, I was bending the reality. I, I was, you know, I was born in former Yugoslavia. We had war here. I survived war. I was yeah. very afraid, little girl. I, I, I just didn't know how to transform my life. And then I found research about changing the identity and bending the reality. And yeah. I was learning like a little kid all of these, these, <laughs> these years. Uh -huh. And I did it. I completely created a, a, a different kind of myself. I was able to pay off all my debts. I was able to leave the corporation. I was able to start my own business and do what I love now. And I had no idea about anything that you just shared, which is obviously there for some time. I was just, as you said, speaking to my angels and I was guided into one direction. And, you know, in the middle of these changes of our shadow, I just finished the program of out-of-body experience. Wow, how wonderful. But it's it's just incredible how everything matches and everything is precisely in the, the right moment. So please, <laughs> please, please tell me a little bit more, like how this actually works. Um, okay. uh, 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 like um, my my obviously scientific mind wants wants to know and and you know everything. Like what exactly happened when when you do your program uh, uh, and you are measuring alpha states? Uh, how you do that? What what exactly is happening? Uh, That's a wonderful uh, question. It's a it's a th there are three things that make biosabinon unique. Now, when I started, nobody was doing brainwave feedback other than Joe Camilla at UCSF and Elmer Green at the Menninger Clinic in uh, Topeka, Kansas. He was training theta waves. Now, many people uh, are trying to do brainwave feedback. But what BioCybernote has is a unique triad of ingredients. And it's almost like if we would take a uh, three-legged stool, mm -hmm. you take one of the legs away and it falls over it, but the three leg makes it stable one leg is the patented ergonomic technology mm -hmm. our technology is so unique nobody else has it because i built it we have a r d lab some of the things have to be assembled through microscopes because the parts are so tiny and uh, so we have a patented ergonomic technology secondly is the also patented training protocols mm -hmm. our training are seven consecutive long days. People may be at the training center 12, 13, 14 hours. You could not come one day a week for seven weeks and get anything like the results. Uh, and the third leg of the stool is the transformational perspective of the trainer. That is the secret sauce. To give you an idea of the importance of that, one time, uh, one of my programmers had at his shop a complete set of my technology because he was writing new software for it that I had wanted some upgrades. And uh, without telling me, he gave his business partner, 
who was a little bit, I would say, dingling, uh, gave his business partner 100 sessions with my technology. And nothing happened. He didn't have the protocols. He didn't have the transformational perspective of the trainer. The thing is that one of the things that uh, very in 2006 came to me was a little book called The Zen Ox Herding Stories. And it described the five hindrances, doubt, drowsiness, distractibility, and worry, aversion, any form of ill will, and boredom. And this represented the distilled wisdom of a thousand years of Zen practice in Japan. You know, every day the, the monks would go talk to their Roshi, their master, and they distilled down the hindrances to meditative practice into these five hindrances. So I immediately started using that because the main opponent in any personal growth is the ego. Okay, the ego is a narcissistic subpersonality that has one objective, to control you. It doesn't care if you're hurting, doesn't care if you're rich or poor, it just wants to control you. And so this was very helpful. And however, what I observed was that there was a, a sixth hindrance. It was forgetfulness. If somebody would like go into the chamber and they would do forgiveness, there was one guy, his wife had gotten Alzheimer's and she had been seven years in a care home. He would go every day. She didn't know him, but he would go every day. And there was a lot of anger coming up on his mood scales. And he didn't seem to know what, it was unconscious. It was, I wrote a program that could detect unconscious emotion. People take it when they're in the chamber and their brainwaves are being recorded. And so he didn't seem to know what the anger was. So in the third day, it, we're, it, we're going over the mood scales in the morning and he mumbles something. And I go, what was that? Oh, he, I got him to say, angry at Maud. That was his wife's name, angry at Maud. Well, well why are you angry at Maud? And he didn't want to say, so I coaxed him. And he said, for ruining our golden years. This couple had never taken a vacation. They never took a weekend. They worked continuously to save up a big nest egg so they could travel the world. And then Maud got Alzheimer. And even though he loves her, he goes every day, spends the day with her. He's angry at her for ruining their golden years. And so I said, well, you need to go in and forgive Maud. So he does. And he comes out at the end of the day, and his story was that as he was forgiving Maud, he felt a pain in his forehead. And then it was like an opening, and an intense light came out. And I said, well, tell me about the light. He goes, it was brighter than the sun. So I went into a big dialogue with him about, oh, my God, your third eye opened, and you know this divine light came out, and it was because you forgave Maud. It was because you forgave Maud. It was because you forgave Maud. That's, and we talked about it for about 10 minutes. Then he went on talking about the rest of his session. And then about five, six minutes later, he goes, now, now why did I have that experience? And I go, wait a minute. Come on. And his ego, he goes, it was looking at it wasn't going to let him. And so there were total five people in the training. So I gave them all post-its. And I said, now you write down why he had that experience. Everybody immediately wrote, forgave Maud. And his ego is sitting there like, oh, my God, everybody knows. And finally, he got it up because I forgave Maud. And everybody cheered. At that point, I knew that forgetfulness was also a hindrance, along with doubt, drowsiness, distractibility, and worry, aversion, and informal will, and boredom. But then I had another problem. How did those Zen guys miss forgetfulness? It was so obvious. 
And that was sometime in 2006. So 2007, uh, 2008, every training I led, when I would introduce the hindrances, I would ask, how did those Zen guys miss forgetfulness? And I didn't, nobody knew. So in the middle, in July of 2008, I shut down the training center. At the time, I stupidly believed in global warming. Now I know we're going into a grand solar minimum. It's going to get very cold. Food production is going to drop because of the cold. But I moved to Canada. I bought a house and uh, renovated it, 8,000 square feet in the training center. And I lived there. And so in December of 2008, Alan Paul Markin, the one who made the $6 million scholarship, the one who said the ROI on the Biosovereign Training is 100. He came for training with his fiance, now wife, and uh, uh, three other people. And uh, when I asked the question, how did the Zen guys miss forgetfulness? He gave me a one-word answer. It shocked me. The word was mercury. Oh, my God. Mercury causes forgetfulness. And before the widespread burning of coal, which only goes back 200 years and not even in all countries, there was no mercury contamination of the biosphere. And so people weren't forgetful. This tells us a lot about ego because ego is an opportunistic predator. Now, everybody has mercury in their brain. Everybody. It varies how much. Uh, if you had tuna ever in your life, you have mercury in your brain. And so um, I haven't eaten tuna since about 1970. Uh, but I still have mercury in my brain. And so the ego is an opportunistic predator. Now we have a, a civilization that is mercury contamination. They have forgetfulness, so the ego will use it against them. So there are six hindrances now. And so though questions about the details, uh, the brainwaves are very tiny signals, just a few millions of a volt. And so it's important to put on these sensors, little gold disc electrodes, very gently because we do it every day and there are uh, caps or helmets that will like we even with little motors they'll break the skin and get down to live tissue mm -hmm. but you can't that seven days in a row you cause infection and so we very very gently rub in now one thing that would help is if somebody floats in a saltwater pool for an hour before they come in for their training because the salt penetrates the skin and makes it more conductive. So then we pick up the brainwaves. We amplify them in several stages, 100,000 times. So they're big enough for our computers to work with them. And then we do spectral decomposition. To understand that, if you took a, a prism, a triangular prism, and you put a shaft of sunlight into it, you'd get a rainbow. Mm -hmm. It breaks light down into the spectrum from red all the way up to violet. Mm -hmm. And we have the electronic equivalent of a prism. And instead of a shaft of sunlight, we take a channel of brainwaves and we break it down into the spectrum. The slowest frequency is delta, zero to four cycles per second. Theta is four to seven. Seven to eight is Schumann. Eight to 13 is alpha. 13 to 25 is beta. And 25 up to slightly above 100 is gamma. And so any one of those we can pick out and use the amplitude constantly varying amplitude of the out of the brainwave to drive the volume of a tone. So in the chamber, you sit and you listen to tones, the volume of which is driven by your brainwaves. Now we have different speakers and we have different pitch cues, like it would be at different sites, boom, 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 boom. And then we have different instruments, flutes, oboes, clarinets, saxophones, organs, and a mystic choir, a synthesizer voice. So what people do is they sit eyes closed 
listening to these sounds, tones, the music of their mind, and they try to make more of it, or in suppression, they try to reduce it. And then every two minutes, the music stops, and they open their eyes, and for eight seconds, scores light up that quantify the energy that they put out, and also other scores that we call hemicoherence tell them how well their left brain and their right brain are working together at four different pairs of sites. So we have amp integrated amplitude scores, and we have hemicoherent scores. And as people go through this process, um, they become profoundly transformed. The identity changes, anxiety, depression, it drops away, and they become smarter, higher IQ. Uh, and the, the, the IQ boost is independent of where people start. So somebody with an IQ of 70 will have the about the same magnitude uh, increase as somebody at 100 or 130. And so if we can't measure, you know, above 156, you know, that's a good question. Uh, how, how do we measure that? But and people become more creative. At one point, I had a group of scientists from Stanford Research Institute take a week off from their lab duties and come and do the training. Some of them, well, the average increase was 50% in creativity. And some of them solved problems in the alpha chamber that they'd been butting their head against for two years, unable to break through. And so they absolutely love the experience. I am the out of the technology. My mind. <laughs> I am well, I am completely out of my mind. You this is this is truly remarkable. Like I am I could I could listen to you for hours for this if, if, for years. This maybe we can some people will say it's utopia, but this can truly change the world. It will change the world, absolutely. Yeah, we have one center in uh, Bavaria, Germany, and uh, we have a person in Mexico who has paid part of the license fee for a training center in Mexico. His business was disrupted by COVID, and he's just now uh, coming back. Um, and we have people in California and people in Florida interested in having training centers. So this will grow. And this this will change the world. It's it's it obvious. The world. It's yes. it's so obvious. What 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 you are doing now is it's like planting a seed for the complete change. Like and the, the mission of BioCybernaut is to reduce suffering and to increase awareness for all humanity and thereby ushering in an enduring golden age. More yeah, if, if I don't if I don't start to cry, <laughs> I didn't oh. do anything. <laughs> this is I, I'm truly out of my mind. It's it's just like you know, answers to, to, to everything. I knew there was something. Um and now I think I will be the one who will listen to this episode 20 times <laughs> again and again and again, and not even to mention, because when people realize that this can solve their personal problems, this can yeah, yeah. help them in their businesses, this can help yeah. them in their relationships, this all can the, help them the, in every aspect of their life, yeah. right? Uh-huh. In the early years, when I was teaching people about the wide range of benefits that you so wisely understand and comprehend, uh, they would say, oh, it sounds like snake oil. How can one thing do so many different things? And I go, it only does one thing. It improves central nervous system function. And depending on who you are, 
you'll take that improved central nervous function. Maybe you'll write poetry. Maybe you'll you'll derive equations in quantum mechanics. Maybe you'll be a painter. You'll be a, a sculptor. Uh, maybe you'll be a businesswoman, a businessman. Uh, maybe you'll be an inventor. Improved central nervous function benefits anything you put your mind to. Incredible. <laughs> what about health i i guess uh, uh uh when you measure the waves you can actually see if if a person is healthy or or they need assistance with something right well i tell you two stories um one uh one of my teachers and then colleague was dr charles levant jaeger he was a now finished breed of scientist called a clinical electroencephalographer he could look at a 21 channel polygraph recording and make accurate psychiatric diagnoses he didn't even have to see the person because brainwaves rule all the information about what you're experiencing and who you are is in your brainwaves and with somebody who recognized the patterns he could he could read that well in the mid-1950s, he was approached by the California State Department of Mental Hygiene, and they requested him to accept a grant. Well, as you know, this is not usually how you get a grant. You fight and climb, <laughs> hopefully, to the top, and you get a grant. No, the government went to him and said, would you please accept a grant? At the time, California had a model system of state hospitals where people would go who had mental problems or, you know, who were depressed or whatever. And Dr. Yeager The grant was to put EEG recording equipment in all, I think there were about 45 of them at the peak. Governor Reagan came in and he closed all the state hospitals. He didn't think government money should be used to you know, help such people. But before that, Dr. Yeager, every year he would, with a team of technicians, he would drive to each hospital in California. The technicians would go out into the wards, put electrodes on the patients, bring them in, run the polygraph, and then The patient would sit there and Dr. Yeager would flip through the polygraph record and he would make recommendations for their treatment, maybe change their medications, maybe different kind of counseling, or maybe even to be released. Maybe they had improved to the point that they could be released. Now, I sat with Dr. Yeager at lunch in 1985. He'd been doing this for 30 years. And he tells me stories, powerful, important, valuable scientific stories that because of the nature, they could never make it into a scientific journal. One of the stories he told me was, He said, you know, if there was a person 101 years old and they had good alpha in their record, I knew they would be alive when I came back next year. On the other hand, it was a young person of 27 and their alpha had diminished or was gone. He said, I would say a very special goodbye to that person, knowing that it was unlikely they would be alive when he came back next year. Because absence of alpha waves in the brain is an indicator of imminently impending mortality. And there was a large hospital admission study done in a large Southern California hospital where for six months, anybody who was admitted was given a routine EEG recording. Could be pregnancy, elective surgery, stabbing, auto accident, uh, gunshot, didn't matter. Whatever the reason, if they were admitted, they were given an EEG recording. They followed up six months later. Six months later, 50% of the people who had no alpha in their record were dead. That's a very important and powerful indicator of your health and well-being. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that absence of alpha is an indicator of imminently impending mortality. And when I ran the federal grant research study with women from 60 well up into their 80s, it was like, well, many of them had never graduated high school. So they went and got GED, the equivalent. Then they went to college. They got degrees. Some of them 
got advanced degrees. Some of them in their 80s started new businesses. And so Alpha is like a fountain of youth. And it's, you know, when the blood comes to the brain uh, and it brings oxygen and glucose and the stress is relaxed, uh, people thrive, health and well-being. Now, I said two stories. Here's the second one. At, for one year in 1996, I had a satellite operation, a biosabinant center in Raleigh, North Carolina, East Coast. And while there, uh, there was a business uh, consultant who did the training, and he said he wanted to introduce me to a drug company, uh, Novo Nords, a Danish pharmaceutical company with, at the time, they had 10,000 employees worldwide, and they took very good care of their employees, free medical everything, free drugs, uh, free hospital care, everything. And they had a startup with 100 employees just south of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so he brought me down there. And uh, the manager, the general manager, was very interested in everything I had to say. And he was we were just ready to talk contract term. He was going to send all 100 people for alpha training at my center in Raleigh. And then just before we went to discussing the contract terms, he goes, oh, I have another question. He said, uh, what does this do for diabetes? I said, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you about something that happened a few years earlier. On our consent form, uh, we have a questionnaire that it asks if you've had any head injuries uh, or do you have diabetes. And somebody came in. <laughs> Excuse me. It's the meth blue that I uh, sprayed into my nose earlier. Um, the person lied about having diabetes. And uh, so we didn't know. Now, they had a test kit. They would test their blood, but the baggage handlers broke the testing kit. So they're in the training. Their test kit is broken. They have diabetes. We don't know it. So what the person did was they just took their normal dose of insulin every day. Well, by day five, the person had de-stressed so profoundly mm -hmm. that the normal was a massive overdose and they went into a uh, into an insulin coma and literally slid out of their chair onto the floor wow fortunately uh one of the technicians had heard the person talk about sugar so we made him a sugar drink and so you know he was story had a happy ending but so the point is that the biocybernaut alpha training so profoundly reduced the need for insulin that the regular dose was a massive overdose so the general manager asked me, he said, well, would you take half a million dollars for the worldwide rights to your technology? And I go, well, well, no, that's not why I'm here. He said, would you take a million dollars? And I go, no, I'm here to provide a service to you and your people. Well, what happened next? It was like mm -hmm. 50 seconds later, we were not only out of his office, we were standing on the front steps of the building and I said to the business consultant who had brought me there, I said, what happened? We were just about to talk contract terms. He said, Novo Nords is the world's third largest producer of insulin. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, So he wanted to buy the rights of the technology and bury it. Exactly. I said, no. 
And I have goosebumps again because your mission <laughs> is not to bury the technology. Your mission is to help humanity. It is, and and sure. people like us to to this is this is remarkable. I am I am truly speechless. If someone would like to work with you, there will be a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs. Uh, watching this uh, what's the best way to reach out how they can uh, um, find you well uh, the website is www.biocyber.com that's mm -hmm. b-o-c-y-b-e-r-n-a-u-t.com and there's ways you can contact kate at biocybernaut.com sets the schedule and if people want to sign up for a training she can tell you when there's availability both in germany and uh in uh, sedona arizona mm -hmm. so uh the next training in germany starts on the 13th of september mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the next one after that is the 23rd of september it, so I, my, i'm just i'm just like if i you know how they say if i had a mic it would be a mic drop <laughs> 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 going to be one of the the most watched and listened uh, episode uh, i ever recorded uh it it's it, you truly took me all in and it was it was so incredible to 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 learn from you to to just discover all of these things for you that's most probably something which is part of your everyday life you know for someone blessedly like me, gratefully yes and and a lot of well, and i have a gift i have a gift for you and all your viewers yes please please share it with a free pdf copy of my book which is called the art of smart thinking and mm -hmm. to get get a download free download you just go to triple w biocyber.com slash bonus I will leave the, the link. I will leave the link of the book and and the website in in a description of our show, and and so they can reach out. I am I am I don't know, so happy and so blessed. And you completely changed my day. I was so tired. I have to say oh. because <laughs> it was it was such such a like overwhelming day. And I said no. I feel I have to come. And this is. This is the result. Thank you so much for being my guest. I, I truly enjoyed it and I hope you did too. Catherine, it's been a blast. It's been blissful. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Heart. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for joining us on another inspiring episode of The Catherine B. Roy Show. Remember, the journey doesn't end here. Dive into the episode description to access additional resources and connect with me, Catherine B. Roy. Whether it's business growth, personal development, or simply making the world a better place, we're in this together. Subscribe, write a review for The Catherine B. Roy Show. Share it with your loved ones and stay tuned for more remarkable guests and valuable insights. Until next time, keep chasing your dreams and turning your passions into thriving businesses. This is Catherine B. Roy, signing off.